For our sermon this morning, I invite you to turn in God's holy word to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13, and this morning we'll be looking at verses 31 through 33. As you are turning there, just for your information, uh, this is paralleled in two of the other Gospels. Uh, these same parables can be found in Mark chapter 4, verses 30 through 34, as well as Luke chapter 13, verses 18 through 21. So all three of the synoptic Gospels record these two parables uh, that Jesus tells on how the kingdom grows. And that is the title of my sermon this morning, How the Kingdom Grows. Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. He, that is Jesus, put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger than all the garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and make nest in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we ask that your spirit would open our eyes and our ears to receive what you have to say for us, your people, this day. Lord, help us to hear your voice and to be encouraged to take comfort in your word, and to have our trust strengthened in you through Christ our Lord and Savior, in whom we pray. Amen. George Mueller and his wife opened their English home to orphans in 1836. They were able to house up to 30 orphans at the beginning. Slowly but surely, 30 turned into 130, and three more houses were furnished to take care of the orphans in England. By the time of his death, George and his wife had cared for more than 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. What makes this ministry even more astounding is that Mueller never made requests for financial support. And he never went in debt, although the five homes that were built to house the orphans cost over 100,000 pounds, which would be roughly $150,000, which was a lot of money back then. It is said that many times he would receive unsolicited food donations only hours before the food was needed to feed the children. One day... One particular account that has been recorded in his memoirs, all of the children were seated at the table for breakfast and there was no food. But they gave thanks to God anyway, and after giving thanks to God, a, a baker knocked on the door with enough bread to feed everybody, and the milkman gave them plenty of fresh milk because his cart had broken down right in front of the orphanage. George Mueller was a nobody whom God used to take care of many needy children, orphans, 
and expose them to the good news of Jesus Christ, both in word and in deed. In our two parables before us this morning, we're going to see that this is the pattern of the way that God works to grow his kingdom. First, I want us to see small beginnings. Small beginnings. Jesus tells two parables that carry the same point. That's why he tells them back to back to reinforce the message. In the first parable, Jesus, by way of analogy, likens the the kingdom of heaven to a mustard seed. In Jesus' day, the mustard seed was the smallest seed that the Jews regularly planted in their gardens, and it became a proverb. The Jewish rabbis would use the, the image of a mustard seed proverbially to indicate something of very small size. So Jesus' use of the mustard seed fits with the Jewish thinking of his day, where proverbially he says it is small. It is the smallest of all seeds. He's, He's not trying to give scientific accuracy. He's telling a parable that fits in with the Jewish understanding and mindset of his day. It's the smallest seed that you use, that you plant, and that you grow. But it doesn't stay small, Jesus says. It eventually grows larger than all the other plants in the garden. It becomes a great bush or a great tree. Some suggest that the mustard could sometimes grow to to 10 or 12 feet in height. I mean, you, you could fit it on the edge of your pinky and it would grow to 10 or 12 feet in height. And it had large leaves on it, which would provide a nice shade. In Mark's account of this parable, in Mark chapter 4, when he records the telling of this parable, he has the birds making nests in the shade of the tree because of the nice leaves. But the point of the parable is that what started off very small has now grown into something that is quite large. There's Old Testament background to this image of a seed growing into a large tree. In Ezekiel chapter 17, the Lord talks about the restoration of Israel. And he says the following in verses 22 and 23 of Ezekiel 17. I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. In Ezekiel's context, the Lord is not only going to restore Israel, but at the restoration of Israel... He's going to bring in the Gentiles. And so he uses this same imagery of something very small, a a tiny sprig that he has broken off. He's going to plant it, and it's going to grow into a large cedar tree. This imagery was also used in Daniel chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar had a, a dream that referred to the greatness of the Babylonian kingdom. And in that dream, Nebuchadnezzar would be humbled by the Lord God. And so in the Old Testament, between Ezekiel 17 and Daniel 4, the imagery of birds resting in the shade of a large tree was a symbol of a powerful kingdom providing shelter for nations. 
So Jesus takes this imagery of the Old Testament, and he says, this is what the kingdom of God is. It's a powerful kingdom that's going to provide shelter for the nations. All types of people from every family, tongue, nation, and tribe on the earth are going to come and find shade and find shelter in this kingdom. And Jesus says that this process of growth from small beginnings to a great flourishing is an analogy for the way the kingdom of God grows. It starts off small, but over time as it grows, it becomes so much bigger than what it was at its very beginning. It's incredibly small, just like the mustard seeds, one of the smallest seeds known to man. But when it grows, it becomes so great that, that the picture is birds building their homes in its branches and finding cool relief in its shade. And the second parable is much like the first. Jesus, again, using analogy, likens the kingdom of heaven to yeast. And you don't have to be Julia Childs or a master chef to know that a little bit of yeast can work through a great amount of dough to cause it to rise. Jacqueline and the girls love to make bread, and it's amazing how just a, a tiny little bit of yeast worked into the dough can cause that dough to, to expand and to rise and, and multiply. It becomes larger, even though that yeast is just a little tiny amount. It spreads and permeates through and affects everything, all of the dough, and it causes it to, to rise and grow beyond its proportion into something that's very delicious. If scholars have understood ancient measurements correctly, then three or four pounds of leaven, uh, which is roughly what is, um, is used here, uh, took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leaven. Three or four pounds of leaven creates enough bread to feed 100 to 150 people. And so again, you have this image of what started off small ends up disproportionately large compared to its small beginnings. And what Jesus is teaching us is that the kingdom of heaven has a very small beginning. It's almost as if it's unnoticeable. But over time, it begins to spread and to grow, becoming larger and greater, and is affecting all that is around it. As the kingdom of heaven grows and expands, it is permeating throughout the whole world. And this is a consistent pattern that we see throughout Scripture. God takes nobodies and small things and uses them to grow his kingdom and magnify himself. Abraham was just some pagan guy hanging out in Ur, worshiping false gods. When God called him to go to a land, he would show him and make a covenant with him. Joseph was almost the youngest of 12 sons from a shepherding clan, but God raised him to second in command over all of Egypt. The America of that day, the superpower on the world scene at that time. Israel was a tiny group of people in slavery whom God freed from Egyptian oppression and gave victory over all her enemies so that they conquered the promised land and settled in it. The Lord whittled Gideon's army down from 30,000 to 
300, and yet they were victorious over the Midianites. God used a nobody like Ruth to preserve the line of David from whom ultimately the Messiah would come. David was just a shepherd boy, the youngest son of the family, yet God raised him up as king over Israel. If God had not used David, David would have remained just an average shepherd guy with no inheritance, living in the town of Stanfield, for that is what Bethlehem was like in that day. He probably would have gotten married and had a few children and lived a typical shepherding life, and that would have been it. But no, God raised up this, this young shepherd boy to be shepherd over his people as king. We see this pattern continue in the Gospels. You have Jesus, a man of no repute, and 12 disciples with a few more followers here and there. In the beginning, you have a group of people probably smaller than our church at the very beginning. But when you go to the book of Acts, you have 120 people gathered in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost. And then you have Peter preaching his great sermon on Pentecost and 3,000 souls being gathered into the harvest. You see the kingdom growing and spreading throughout the book of Acts like the yeast leavening the, the flower or the tree growing from the tiny seed into a full tree. It's going out and permeating the whole world. God used nobodies like Paul, who is the chief of sinners and a Hebrew rabbi. He used ordinary fishermen like Peter and tax collectors like Matthew to spread the message of the kingdom and the king, Jesus Christ. We see the continued working of the Holy Spirit throughout history and even down to today. There are churches across the nation. There are churches on every continent, except for maybe Antarctica, but maybe there's even believers working on that continent. Jesus, talking directly to his small band of disciples, says that the kingdom of God may seem relatively impotent and small, but one day many will be astonished about how the kingdom grew and impacted the world. And we stand on the other side of that. We get to see how the kingdom has grown over time, beyond the time of the apostles, beyond the time of the early church. We see how the, the, the kingdom is still spreading. The, 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 the leaven is, is still leavening the world. The mustard seed is still growing the message of God's kingdom is continuing to spread. The message of the good news of Jesus Christ is continuing to spread. And people are still being converted even today. And we are caught up in the story of God. We are swept up in this movement of God's rule and reign expanding and permeating throughout the earth. We get to be a part of the kingdom's continued growth and expansion. And the story continues, and we are part of it, and we get to play a role in it. We are but a few people. We have humble beginnings. Not that well-known of a church. 
We don't air our messages on television. I am not the author of New York Times number one bestsellers. We pretty much go unnoticed. Certainly on the grand scale of our country and our planets and around the world, we are, we're infinitesimal, we're, we're minuscule. From the world's perspective, it seems like we can't accomplish anything. We seem powerless and weak, but I'm here to remind you today that we have the Spirit of God. We have the Spirit of God. We have the words of life. We have the words of truth. We have what the world desperately needs, even though the world doesn't know it, and even though the world doesn't recognize and refuses to believe that what we have is what they need. Looks are deceiving in God's economy. Looks are deceiving in God's economy. He takes that which is small and weak and uses it to accomplish his sovereign decree. The sovereign will of the king of the universe is carried out by his faithful servants who are merely vessels of clay. The disciples were, for the most part, uneducated. Simple fishermen and tax collectors. The Pharisees and rulers looked down upon them. They were powerless, of no reputation. One commentator writes, quote, God takes distasteful characters and transforms them, and then transforms society through them. So I ask you the question this day, do you believe God can use you? Do you believe that God can use you? Do you believe God can use us as a church? Humbled and whittled down by, by COVID, do you believe God can still use us? He used one man and his wife to help take care of 10,000 orphans, never asking for money, but only relying upon God and going to him in prayer. Do you believe that God can use our humble church to accomplish mighty things for the kingdom of heaven? Not for our glory, but for the glory of God. If even one person is converted, or if 30 saints are strengthened and grow more mature in the faith, that is no small thing. In the sight of God, that is a great thing. Let's not downplay what it means for one person to be converted. Let us not downplay that, that we're growing stronger spiritually, even if we're not growing stronger numerically. Don't downplay sanctification. The prophet Jeremiah did not know a single convert to Yahweh during his long prophetic ministry. Neither did the pro prophet Isaiah. But he was faithful to God. Both of them were faithful to God. They carried out the mission that God gave to them. So was Jeremiah and Isaiah successful or unsuccessful? 
in the world's eyes, they would account them to be unsuccessful, right? Who would want a ministry such as that? A ministry where you're told that you're going to go preach the word of God and nobody's going to listen to you because I've hardened their hearts. Isaiah says, sign me up. But today, I don't think many would volunteer for that. Not elevation. I don't even know if I would volunteer for that. Unsuccessful in the world's eyes. But in God's eyes, they were successful because they were faithful. Not because they drew in large crowds. Not because 5,000 people were converted in their ministry. They were successful in God's eyes because they were faithful to the commission that God had given to them. Results are not an indication of faithfulness. Write that down. Results are not an indication of faithfulness. And yet, often, that's how we treat it, right? God's growing and blessing a ministry. Wow, they're, they're really faithful. They're really holy and committed. Not necessarily. Why do 40,000 people gather together at a very large church building in Texas? It's not to hear the gospel. And so D.A. Carson writes this, The kingdom produces ultimate consequences out of all proportion to its insignificant beginnings. The preaching of the cross is foolishness to man, but it's the God-ordained means through which God expands his kingdom rule by drawing more and more of his elect unto himself. We must not look down upon the way God does things or doubt what he can and does do with what is small and weak in the eyes of the world. What are you doing, Pastor Mark? You get up there Sunday after Sunday, morning and evening and Wednesday night, and you simply talk, and you think that that's going to change the world? Yes! Because I'm talking about the Word of God and Jesus Christ. And He is the one who changes people's lives through the proclamation of the gospel. Yes, I believe that what I am doing is more important than what the world considers to be important. Yes. Foolishness to the world, but precious in the sight of God. Small beginnings. Finally and quickly, I want us to see suitable settings. Suitable settings. In the first parable, the, the seed is planted in the field, verse 31, he takes the, the mustard seed and sows it in his field. And the, the leaven is taken and hidden in three measures of flour, verse 33. The seed is not planted in the home, underneath the carpets or the hardwood flooring. It's not planted in somebody's hair. It's not planted on the road where it can be run over with, trampled, or eaten by the birds. It's not mixed in with the flour. 
The second parable, the leaven is mixed in with the flour. It's not sprinkled on an ear of corn. It's not mixed in with wine. It's not sown in the field where the seed belongs. The message of the kingdom of God is to aim at the right environment, and that is the heart. That's the heart. Preaching and teaching and our Christian witness and testimony to the works of God in Jesus Christ is all to be aimed at people's hearts. And our heart stands for our, our very whole inner being. It's our thoughts, our will, our desires, our feelings, our conscience, all together under the umbrella that Scripture uses, the heart, your inner person, your soul, or your spirit. For it is there in the heart that the Holy Spirit works through the word and the ordinary means of grace to convert sinners and to build up saints. Psalm 119.11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Preaching and teaching, whether to the unconverted or the converted, seeks to call us to, to repentance from our sin, continued daily repentance from our sin, and calls us to faith in God in Jesus Christ. It tells us of the, the comfort and the encouragement and the hope and the, the joy and the peace and the love that we have that comes from God by faith, and which enables us to treat others accordingly. It begins in the heart. The word of God, like that seed or like that leaven, begins in the heart. And as the word of God fills us up, it permeates through our entire being. And through the process of sanctification, we grow, we mature like a seed into a tree bearing fruit. And so when we begin with the heart and when we address the heart, everything else follows and flows from that. You don't address external actions first. That's getting it backwards. You address the heart. And the gospel is the only suitable message. The gospel tells us of God's holiness and his call to holiness, without which nobody will see God. It, it tells us of the love of God in Christ Jesus in giving us his own holiness and perfect righteousness through the perfect life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that is to be aimed at the heart, and nothing else is suitable. Self-help stories told from a pulpit are not suitable for the heart. Trying to get and retain people simply by keeping them entertained on a Sunday morning is not suitable for the heart. Only the gospel is suitable for the heart. And only the heart is the aim of the gospel and from which everything else flows and is affected. Calvin says that these parables, that by these parables, we are encouraged not to be offended or turned back from the gospel simply because of its small beginnings. It's profaned and ridiculed by unbelievers because the ministers of the gospel are of no reputation and low rank. 
It is profane because the world does not receive it with applause like they should. The kingdom of heaven is comprised of the poor and the lowly, which in the eyes of the world are weak. The world is all about riches and power. The kingdom of heaven is not about riches and power. It's about humbling ourselves, being meek, being kind and gentle and loving, not exalting ourselves, but abasing ourselves and exalting God, which is exactly the opposite of the way the world thinks. Calvin writes, quote, the Lord opens his reign with a feeble and despicable commencement for the express purpose that his power may be more fully illustrated by its unexpected progress. Small beginnings, yes, but there is great power that goes with it to permeate and grow contrary to the world's expectations, contrary to all the obstacles that Satan puts in its way. Rich and powerful empires and rulers have come and gone. The Roman Empire is no more. Alexander the Great is dust. Kings and popes have risen and fallen, but the kingdom of God continues on. The kingdom of God continues on. Our eyes should not be on the small and humble beginnings or even how God's kingdom appears now, but on the boundless power of God that accompanies the proclamation of the kingdom of God. Let us not worry about scoffers. Let us not worry about those who may laugh at us. Let us not grow weary or despondent. Let us continue by faith to contend for the Lord's kingdom and his glory. The same spirit that opened the hearts of 3,000 people in one day to receive salvation dwells in you and in me. The same spirit that opened the womb of the barren to conceive and bring forth children is the same spirit that dwells in you and in me. The same spirit that hovered over the face of the deep at creation is the same spirit that dwells in you and in me. The same spirit that as recently as 300 years ago caused a great awakening in this very country is the same spirit that dwells in you and me. And if it be his will, he will do it again. That same spirit that's growing the church in China, in Asia, in South America, expanding the, the rule and the reign of the kingdom of God in people's hearts, is the same spirit that dwells in you and me. Francis Schaeffer writes, quote, The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. All you have to do is look at the story of David and Goliath. Do not despise the day of small things, for it is the small and the weak and the powerless that God uses to advance his kingdom so that no one may boast except that they boast in the Lord Jesus, that God may get all the glory for causing his kingdom to grow and to transform lives and societies and nations. Amen and amen. Let us pray.